Hello again. I'm Robin Anir and this is Nothing on TV, a podcast that ransacks Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Our story this time begins with an item from Melbourne's Sun News Pictorial in 1936. Now, it's true that the Sun, a photo-heavy tabloid that kicked off in 1922, isn't yet available on Trove. Nope, this is something I came across years ago on a microfilm copy of the Sun. But indulge me. After all, the whole backstory and elaboration will be supplied from newspapers on Trove. I promise. So, listen to this. It comes from page four of the Sun News Pictorial on Friday, March 27th, 1936, right next to a photo of the world's largest teapot. Headline, Men dig in Richmond Yard and carry away... What? Question mark. The elements of a William LeCue novel are in a strange happening that has occurred at Richmond. What's a William LeCue novel? Well, just substitute a Dan Brown novel and you've got the picture. Anyway. Residents of Canterbury Street and its vicinity say that a stranger visited them three years ago and sought permission to examine kitchens and to take measurements in backyards. He was a foreigner. The man said he had a plan showing the location of buried wealth. His sister had sent the drawing to relations abroad just before her death. Her house was in Canterbury Street and only measurements would show which one. Several weeks later, he disappeared. Last week, the stranger appeared again and bought a house in Canterbury Street. Blinds were drawn, doors barricaded and the gate nailed up. Neighbours say that on Sunday, a car stopped at the house. Three men carrying picks and shovels hurried to a small shed in the yard. All day they toiled, excavating, piling the soil outside. At dusk, Carrying something heavy, they returned to the car and drove away. The new owner has not been seen since, and the mystery remains. Now, the Sun was a morning newspaper, and its afternoon stablemate was The Herald, which came out, would you believe, in seven or eight different editions each day, reporting sports results as they came in and updating the day's news from late morning to the end of the evening rush hour. Well, that same afternoon, 27th of March, 1936, the Herald followed up the story. Their reporter confirmed that the house had been bought by not one, but two foreigners, just a fortnight before. Straight away, they'd served an eviction order on Joe Caton, a paper hanger and painter who'd rented the house for the past seven years. Within days, he'd moved out, and late that very night, a luxurious car drove up. Out got two men, not three, and according to the Herald, all that night, neighbours say, the men were engaged in digging up the backyard. They departed at daybreak. A few days later, they were back, digging again. This time, said the Herald, their excavations took them under the fence of an adjoining yard, when the owner, Mr Edward Mitchell, ordered them to stay in their own yard. There was an argument. The two foreigners dug no more in the adjoining yard. Once again, the men drove away. 
Don't you love the rat-a-tat style of the Herald and Sons prose? What a change from the verbosity of 19th century reportage. The Herald report goes on. On Tuesday, Mrs M. Edney, an aged widow who has lived next door for the past 40 years, ventured inside the front gate of the house. She was met by a very dark elderly man who, speaking with a foreign accent, ordered her out and told her to stay out. Immediately afterwards, he put a huge padlock on the front gate. Then both men departed again in the car and have not been seen since. But wait, the mystery deepens. The report goes on. Police activities were set in motion today by what promised to be a startling find in a room of the house. A man, peering over the top of a curtained front window, so much for the padlock on the gate, was startled to see two boots covered at the ankles by a sheet of newspaper protruding from behind a door. The police forced an entry, and behind the door of the room was a complete miner's outfit even to a pair of thick miner's boots. There were picks, shovels, crowbars, and even a saw. The entire flooring of two back rooms had been ripped up and deep holes had been dug in the ground, extending tunnel-like under the house. There was not a stick of furniture there. One neighbour, it was reported, had gone to the police three years earlier, back when the foreign stranger was calling at houses in Canterbury Street and asking to measure their backyards and kitchens. When police questioned him at that time, said the Herald, the man had told them a strange story of buried treasure. He said that many years ago his eldest sister came from Germany, married here and settled down with her husband. She wrote to her people later, enclosing a plan of the location where she had buried considerable wealth. He added that his sister died in mysterious circumstances. That was before the war the First World War, of course. Now, police told the Herald they knew the man well. He'd since made repeated visits to the criminal investigation branch, they said, seeking information. Accompanying the Herald's front-page report were photos of plain-clothes police inspecting excavations in the wash house and garden of that house in Canterbury Street. I'd include them at my Nothing on TV homepage, only as they appear on Trove, They're about as smudgy as Rorschach blots. In one, you can just make out a weatherboard building. In the other, a stooping man in a fedora. As illustrations of a mystery, they're perfect. Next morning, the Melbourne Argus reported that following their raid on the house, police had interviewed a middle-aged German, presumably the dark foreigner, who declared himself convinced that treasure was buried on the property and intends to continue the search. Under further questioning, however, his story took a more sinister turn, as reported later that same day in this wire story from the Brisbane Telegraph. A man whose strange digging in backyards at Richmond led to the supposition that he was seeking buried treasure, actually he'd stated as much, told the police today that he was looking for skeletons not gold. He said that he was searching for the remains of two women who had been murdered. Besides his own house in Canterbury Street, he was negotiating for the purchase of the adjoining property. Somewhere on either allotment are the bodies of two women, was his startling announcement. I am determined to find them, he said. Now, 
Here were echoes of the Deeming case 40-some years earlier, in which the finding of a woman's body buried under the hearth of a house just across the river at Windsor triggered an unprecedented news frenzy on an international scale. The victim's husband, it turned out, was a serial killer, and the discovery at Windsor led an investigative reporter to trace him back to England and to a trail of grisly crimes. He was even suspected of being Jack the Ripper. You can imagine how many newspapers that story sold. But to continue the Brisbane Telegraph's report, although at first the man was reluctant to amplify this statement, that it was bodies he was digging for, he told the police after considerable questioning that he had been boarding at the house in 1921 when the women disappeared. Since then, they have not been seen and the man believes they were killed and buried on the property. Now, this seems curious. He lived in a house in or in the vicinity of Canterbury Street. Remember, in the Sun report we began with, the man had knocked on doors in Canterbury Street and its vicinity three years earlier. So he'd lived there 15 years ago, but couldn't recall exactly which house it was? Well, Richmond was a suburb of workers' cottages. Probably many of them did look the same. But if he suspected foul play at the time, when the two women went missing, and if he'd been to the police seeking information on several occasions since, how was it that his suspicions were only emerging now, after considerable questioning? And what about his sister and her buried treasure? The next day, March 29th, Brisbane's Sunday Mail reported that the mystery has been solved. The headline was, Corpses much alive, but German still goes on digging. Melbourne man's strange obsession. And it goes like this. Several incoherent versions of this story have been told to the police by the man, a middle-aged German cabinet maker. He reported to the criminal investigation branch some time ago that while living at the house with a German family in 1921, two of the daughters disappeared and he was convinced they'd been murdered and their bodies buried on the premises, one in the backyard and the other under the kitchen floor. Detectives investigated the story and found that both the women were still alive. They were interviewed, but the man persisted in his story and has gone to the police many times in the last three years to try to induce them to make investigations. When he could not persuade the police to believe his story, he bought the cottage for £100 and undertook a search himself. Contending that the fences around the property have been moved since he lived in the cottage, he has tried to buy a vacant block of land adjoining the cottage. Early on Saturday, he returned to the house and resumed his digging. He also began to tear the weatherboards off the side of the dwelling with an axe. Intrusion by newspapermen was hotly resented and attempts to interview the man were met with hostility. He threatened to assault a photographer who tried to take a picture of him. The Adelaide News got a photo. Children spy on mysterious digging operations, it's headlined, and it shows a girl, a boy and a tabby cat squinting between the boards of a slab fence, enjoying the free peep show. The police were apparently satisfied that they were dealing with a crank and declared that the man was free to keep digging as long as he kept to his own property. And the papers, too, seemed to have written him off as delusional. When last heard of, identified as a German who lives in King William Street Fitzroy, he was relegated to page eight of the Argus and vowing to pull the house down and dig up every foot of the ground. And that 
was the end of the story, as far as the press was concerned. Now look, I'm as beset by curiosity as the next person, and I figure there have got to be records that have shed more light on this story, right? After all, didn't the police say that at the man's urging they tracked down the two women and interviewed them? In which case, mm, there'd be a file or something, wouldn't there? Way down deep at the public records office that would lay out all the names and circumstances in the case. But that's not my remit here at Nothing on TV. The stories I tell stick mainly to what can be gleaned from Trove newspapers. And to be honest, I'll use just about any excuse to avoid visiting the public records office. Maybe it's just me, but that place seems designed to consume the soul. Maybe it's just me. But anyway, let's stick with what Trove Newspapers has to offer. Just because the trail went cold in the case of the mysterious digging at Richmond, that doesn't mean the papers don't have anything more to add to the story. You see, at first, when it seemed to be about hidden treasure, not murder, the story rang a bell with me. My imagination, I've noticed, tends to run on familiar grooves, and things that catch my eye in the old papers months, even years apart, will sometimes seem to talk to each other. See, I'd also filed away this snippet from the Melbourne Age of May 23rd, 1898, so nearly 40 years before the Richmond mystery made the news. Here it is. Castlemaine, Sunday. Mr D. O. Brown, cordial manufacturer of this town, received by the last mail a communication bearing a Barcelona postmark and Spanish stamp. The letter purported to be from a Spanish prisoner, endurance vile for political reasons. He states he was sent to Australia with 700,000 francs to buy implements of war for revolutionary purposes. He left a daughter at school in Toledo, and hearing that she was gravely ill and that the revolutionary scheme had been betrayed, he hid the money just outside Castlemaine and left for Spain, where he was arrested and sentenced to 15 years. Now he wants Mr Brown, whom he says he met in Castlemaine, to forward sufficient money to bring his daughter, who has information as to where the treasure is hid, out to Victoria. In return, Mr Brown is to receive one-third of the treasure when it is unearthed. I guess... It was only natural for a Spanish revolutionary entrusted with a war chest to make a beeline for the Australian colonies, internationally renowned as they were for black market ordnance. Not. The town of Castlemaine was famed for its iron foundry, but as far as I know it produced railway parts and boilers, not guns and bunker busters. What was Mr D.O. Brown, cordial manufacturer, to make of this letter? Well, he recognised it for what it was, a scam. And that's why he sent it to the newspaper. Mr Brown was one of thousands worldwide to be targeted around that time by the umpteenth efflorescence of what was known as the Spanish prisoner swindle. This was a forebear of the Nigerian email scams that we've grown familiar with in recent decades. as being traced back to the late 18th century. It seems as if for years following the French Revolution, wealthy people would receive letters that claimed to be written by the former valet to a marquis who, fleeing the revolution, had been forced to abandon a cask filled with gold and diamonds, burying it in a ditch. Now exiled or imprisoned, the valet offered to send the letter's recipient, for a price, a map revealing the treasure's location. 
Back then, the scam was known as Letters from Jerusalem, which hinted at an origin dating back to, who knows, the Crusades? There's a suggestion, too, that it began in the 16th century with the Spanish Armada, when a real Spanish prisoner carried favour from his British captors with tales of El Dorado. In any case, the 19th century was its heyday. The advent of cheap, reliable postal services must partly account for it, but the other condition which led it to thrive was political and civil unrest, if not outright war. The first wave of Spanish prisoner-type letters to reach Britain from Europe came during the Peninsular War at the start of the 19th century. Unrest in Spain throughout much of the century and into the 20th created fertile conditions for scamming. And every 20 years or so, as regimes fell and turmoil rose, a fresh wave of letters would hit Britain and eventually the New World too, spinning tales of injustice and hidden treasure. The letter received by Mr Brown of Castlemaine in 1898 mentioned a daughter of the supposed prisoner. Not only was she posited as the key to the treasure trove, often the letters seemed to use her as bait, highlighting her beauty and vulnerability. This daughter had been a feature of the scam since at least the 1870s. Sometimes a trusted protector in the shape of a priest or governess was also included in the story. In one of the first traces of the scam to reach the newspapers, a private detective placed a notice in the Times of London early in 1876, seeking, on behalf of a client, the whereabouts of a young Spanish lady, an heiress, accompanied by an elderly priest who had failed to arrive from Barcelona. The following year, 1877, the London papers reported that some swindlers in Spain having endeavoured to obtain money from a number of persons in various parts of Scotland by promising to reveal the whereabouts of large quantities of hidden treasure, Her Majesty's Minister at Madrid has reported that such practices are far from being of rare occurrence in Spain. By the 1890s, it wasn't just the wealthy who were being targeted by the Spanish prisoner scam. Tradesmen, publicans, all kinds of small businessmen were receiving letters. No one can say for sure how many of them took the bait, but by the end of the 19th century, the scam was operating on such a large scale that even a small take-up rate meant big profits for the scammers. In Barcelona, Valencia and Madrid, there were said to be letter-writing factories in operation, with postal officials taking kickbacks to turn a blind eye. In Britain and Europe, authorities relied on the press to expose the scam and dissuade their readers from falling for it. And if people there did grow warier, that may partly explain why, in 1898, letters reached Mr Brown in Castlemaine and others like him in Albury, Kalgoorlie, Rockhampton and towns all over Australia. And apparently the letter-writing factories were equipped with business and trades directories from all over the world, listing thousands upon thousands of names and addresses. Who's Who was first published in the 1890s too, and those who vied to have their fortunes flattered in its pages, also found themselves targeted by scammers. The Spanish prisoner fraud letter is turning up everywhere, reported the Queanbeyan Age, and in Sydney, the Daily Telegraph, under the headline, The Spanish Treasure Swindle, A Tale of Bogus Sorrow, quoted a writer from a London newspaper. I should like to think that the attention the conspirators have been devoting to various British colonies during the past year or two 
is a sign that they find their game pretty well played out in the mother country. But I fear it is simply another illustration of their indomitable enterprise. There are frequent proofs that these gentry have not yet exhausted the supply of simpletons here. The Melbourne Herald concluded that anyone who has too much money to spare and wants to fool some of it away is open to take up the speculation. The idea was that if a dupe responded to the first letter, they'd receive a second letter, enclosing official-looking documents to corroborate the prisoner's story and requesting perhaps £10 to grease the wheels. And if that was sent, a third letter would ask for £100 or more to pay for the passage of the prisoner's daughter, her protector and the treasure. The daughter often was offered for adoption or, it was implied, marriage. In the US, many Spanish prisoner letters originated in Mexico or Cuba, with the writer sometimes claiming to be imprisoned in Puerto Rico or even the Philippines. During World War I, some scammers began substituting Belgian refugee for Spanish prisoner, though in a letter received by a Perth resident in 1915, a Spanish scoundrel, signing himself Guzman Panalto, claimed to have placed £32,000 in English banknotes between two flakes of crystal and buried it at Bayswater. According to the Perth Sunday Times, Panalto says that he lived in Perth some time, but the climate was not good for him, and by the advice of his physician he removed to Bayswater, a distance of only four miles from the middle of Perth. Mocking that Prince of Liars Panalto for his ludicrous mistake, the Sunday Times went on. Such a scheme might come off among Kaffirs and Hottentots, but it has no chance among the boys bred with the scent of eucalypt in their nostrils. A thorough trouncing with a good Australian stockwhip would soon convince Panalto and his fellow conspirators of that fact. In white Australia, proof of superiority was to be found everywhere. Even so, at least one West Australian resident did send a sympathetic reply to a Spanish prisoner letter and released thereby a flood of romance which covered eight closely written sheets of large notepaper. In the 1930s, the Spanish Civil War gave a new twist to the scam. Now the Spanish prisoner became a major in the Spanish army who joined the insurgents and was captured by loyalist militia. Recipients of the latest batch of appeals, said the Newcastle Sun, have been selected from among those most likely to be sympathetic to the fascist cause in Spain, especially Roman Catholics. And Spanish police sources were quoted as saying that of those who received a scam letter, one in five reply and one in 20 part with money. I have to confess I did wonder whether our mysterious digger at Richmond, who seems to have been respectable and well-off, he could afford to buy property and, by one report, drove a luxurious car. I wondered whether maybe he'd fallen for the Spanish prisoner scam, fallen so far and spent so much as to actually have received a map purporting to pinpoint the treasure's location, though imprecisely, to a house in Canterbury Street. And perhaps, who knows, once the newspapers got hold of the story, perhaps he tried to put other treasure hunters off the scent by resorting instead to a tale of murder. Because there were other treasure hunters. Always were, always will be. It's not just the lure of get rich quick. No. Treasure, like sex and cat videos, seems to be one of those primal fixations with which we humans are imprinted. It's the idea of treasure that's irresistible. That 
and the quest. There are many spots along the Australian coast where, according to popular legend, there's treasure secreted, left behind by shipwrecks or else by pirates. In 1954, there was an outbreak of treasure hunting along the Victorian coast. I half suspect it was an after-effect of the uh, royal visit. All that pageantry, all that bling had gone to people's heads. A syndicate of businessmen, an assortment actually of publicans, racetrack identities and Western District graziers, got a licence to dig at Queenscliff for a rumoured hidden cave said to be the resting place of fabulous treasure from Lima, deposited there around the turn of the 19th century by a pirate, the cryptically named Benito Benita. Chased through Port Phillip Heads by a British frigate, Benito had supposedly buried bullion, jewels and golden images in the caves under Queenscliff. In 1954, the newspapers were all over the story. The mayor of Queenscliff, a councillor go lightly, told the Argus, All kinds of people have been looking for this treasure for as long as I can remember. The more so since a lonely old man nicknamed Kerosene Jack arrived at Queenscliff years before. Some Queenscliff people, said the Weekly Times, claimed that Kerosene Jack, as a boy, had escaped from a Spanish ship with a map of Benito's treasure tattooed on his arm. And according to the Adelaide Advertiser's informant, Kerosene Jack is said to have unearthed the treasure and buried it again in a different spot. He died, but left clues to the new hiding place. Doubly buried treasure. Classic. Now, the Queenscliff Search Syndicate was guided by the advice of a diviner, Walter Edwards, whose rods had identified several squares about the size of pirates' chests, whatever size that is, on what the papers called Treasure Hill. Take a look at the show page for a Herald artist's impression of the treasure's location. One Sunday in March 1954, an estimated 2,000 sightseers gathered to watch the giant dragline shovel at work digging down, down to the supposed treasure cave. Gelignite was also employed, but after blasting broke windows at a nearby school and showered students with glass, local sentiment seemed to somewhat turn against the treasure syndicate. Something it's easy to miss when we rely on newspapers for the story are the alternative word-of-mouth narratives that never quite made it into the papers. In this instance, the Argus's reporter on the ground picked up that many Queenscliff locals believed the search was actually a cover-up for oil exploration. What can I tell you? The syndicate didn't strike treasure or oil either. But the papers were onto a good thing, and they soon found another treasure hunter to follow. Around the coast to the east, on a hillside above Anderson's Inlet at Inverloch, a white-haired old hermit named Don Nicholson had for the past 15 years been digging with pick and shovel for treasure he claimed his grandfather, not a pirate, not exactly, had buried around 1900. Gold sovereigns, gold dust and jewels looted from Chinese temples are packed into a sealed underground vault, he told the Argus, estimating the treasure to be worth 200 million pounds. Nicholson and his wife Lillian, they'd formerly been Seventh-day Adventist missionaries on the Solomon Islands in Vanuatu, now they lived in a tent close to his diggings on land he claimed had been granted to the Nicholson family by Queen Victoria. This was the story of his treasure as captured from him by a reporter for the Herald. 
My grandfather, John Nicholson, was a wealthy shipper during the last part of the century. There was a Chinese war going on, and he and three other Australian businessmen were smuggling food to China. For these foodstuffs, they were paid in gold. When the Chinese ran out of sovereigns, they began sending jewels looted from temples. For some reason, he continued, the syndicate did not trust banks. The four decided to bury their combined fortune, and they appointed my grandfather as trustee. One by one, the other three died and left old John Nicholson in charge of the treasure. He told my father that the gold was locked in a steel vault buried in the hill. He gave him the directions, showing him how to reach it. But he told my father that money must not be touched until your son is 21. If you die before his 21st birthday, the money is his. But Nicholson said when he was 20, he quarrelled with his father, who told him, you can search for it yourself, even if you have to dig up the whole of the hill. And that's what he was doing. His father had finally forgiven him, he said, but was on his way from West Australia in 1940 with the secret when he died. Coinciding with his years of digging, Don Nicholson had been a regular Sunday speaker at the Spiritualist Church in Melbourne on such topics as the composition of the soul, the lost continent of Mu, atomic perceptions due to light emanations, and the bottleneck of the etheric. Now he claimed that along with the gold and jewels, the vault contained valuable papers, including a formula from Solomon's Temple dealing with cosmic light and energy, which promised to be global in its benefits and more revolutionary than the atomic bomb. Nicholson died before the year was out, but his wife and her two sisters continued the digging for a time, not for the treasure, they said, but for the charter signed by Queen Victoria that granted the land to the Nicholsons in perpetuity. A syndicate of men from nearby Currumburra planned to take over the search for the treasure. They had brought in a radioscope, kind of metal detector, which they said revealed definite evidence of something long and metallic. According to a later report, it turned out to be a narrow seam of coal. There were some local to Inverloch who suspected the real aim of the treasure hunt to be Weiberg's gold, which is a whole other can of worms, or rather of gold sovereigns, 20,000 of them. I'll include a link on my show page to the story of Weiberg's gold in case you're interested. The search continues today online, if not actually on the ground. Likewise, the treasure of the pirate Benito, which is now believed by some to have been sailed up a river in South Gippsland and a cave dug in the hillside by slaves who were then killed and buried inside along with the treasure and sealed behind two steel doors from the ship because ships had steel doors. As of 2014, a local resident claimed to be in possession of a map, possibly tattooed on his bicep, showing the whereabouts of the treasure cave. Who's to say? how much treasure actually gets found. It's the kind of thing you'd keep quiet about since chances are it technically belongs to someone else. I did find one report from 1934. That's a couple of years before the mysterious digging at Richmond. And it began, Treasure trove, gold and jewellery, worth possibly quite a large amount, has been unearthed by a gang of eight relief workers at the shrine. It seems that the relief workers, that is, unemployed men working for sustenance or a meagre kind of dole, had been digging on the parkland surrounding the Shrine of Remembrance, 
land that, until recently, had been within the grounds of Government House. The report in the Melbourne Herald noted that the men fearing the jewellery may be confiscated have not reported their find to the police or to their superiors. No, but they told the journalist. Their first discovery, struck by one man's pick, was a solid gold watch chain nearly 18 inches long. Then, digging feverishly, they discovered in a few minutes 20 gold brooches, two large gold lockets studded with pearls, five gold pendants on chains, a gold watch, a fox head pin, and three silver thimbles. The loot was buried about a foot underground, and judging from the style of ornamentation, had probably lain there for 30 or 40 years. The story behind the discovery can only be guessed at now, said the Herald. As the jewels were buried inside the old government house boundary, it is thought they may have been stolen from government house itself, possibly by a disgruntled servant. You know, I have a different theory. 30 or 40 years ago, that may well have placed it within Lord Hopeton's incumbency as Governor-General. Those of you who caught last season's episode four of Nothing on TV, Champagne and Anarchy, may recall the socialistic inclinations of the 7th Earl of Hopeton. Good old Hopey, as he was called, was a faithful friend to the unemployed, and it would have been just like him, before he left Melbourne, to have salted away a stash of, to him, worthless gigaws for the benefit of the unemployed. Hadn't his lordship, on his final procession through Melbourne, stopped his coach to exchange parting words with Chummy Fleming, the champion of the unemployed? Perhaps his directions were imprecise. In any case, those who discovered the cache of jewellery 32 years later would note that a trench had been dug within 18 inches of the hiding place in an apparent earlier attempt to find it. But no matter, the unemployed benefited in the end. Good old Hopi. Nothing on TV is made in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia, and is produced by Mrs Bradley, not just my literary agent and muse, but the person I might have become if only I'd stuck with learning shorthand. Take a look at my show page, robinanear.com slash nothingontv, for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There's an email link there too if you'd like to drop me a line. But no Twitter or Facebook because Nothing on TV is proudly a social media dead zone. You can find and download past episodes of the podcast at the show page or else at Apple Podcasts or wherever. Why not subscribe and have new episodes drop as if by magic into your podcast feed? Also at the show page, you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.